Welcome again to another edition of Beyond Texas. Last week's finale on Oscar Wilde was the most popular podcast ever in terms of greatest number of downloads in the first week of its existence. In fact, overall, last week was the number one week ever for total downloads. We're approaching 3,000 overall, and truly, I'm happy about that. I'd like to remind you that you can write to me anytime, ask questions, suggest topics, correct me on anything. I'm always ready to learn at wfstrongpodcast at gmail.com. Sometimes I think I should call this podcast a box of chocolates. After Forrest Gump saying that life is like a box of chocolates, you never know what you're going to get. I feel like that. I often don't know for sure what I'm going to talk about until four or five days before, sometimes two days before. Today's topic is a case in point. I just wanted to share a fine story by Kate Chopin. It's truly short, only seven minutes, and it's exquisite in its wording, and I promise you, you'll remember it a long time. The most likely place you've come across her work is in reading her most famous work, The Awakening, or seeing the movie adaptation of her book, Grand Isle, it's called, the 1991 film, not the 2019 film of the same name with Nicolas Cage, which has no connection with Kate Chopin. In 81, a still earlier film called The End of August was also based on her novel, The Awakening, but it's not very good. There's a 2011 horror film named The Awakening that has nothing to do with Chopin's novel either. Kate Chopin lived and wrote in the southern U.S. from 1850 to 1904. As her father died when she was young, she grew up around all women, mother, grandmother, aunts. She married an upper-class wealthy man from New Orleans when she was 20. She had six children in nine years, and then her husband died when she was 32. She was left deeply in debt. She sold off the businesses and properties, and I suppose paid off the debts, and then took the children to live with her mother in St. Louis. Then the next year, her mother died. So she took to writing as a means of supporting her family, and her success came fairly quickly. She began publishing in magazines frequently, short pieces, short stories, and as she got braver with what we would call today her feminist content, she began to set off alarms in Southern society. Chopin's time, you see, was not ready for her. Her novel, The Awakening, which dealt with a woman's sensual, sexual, and emotional awakening, so shocked the world of the American South where she lived and wrote that she was essentially banned from polite and artistic society. She was a free thinker in a time when women's thoughts should be carefully controlled and expressed only with the social editing and the etiquette the age required. She was so shunned that it effectively shut down her writing at the advent of the 20th century when they could have used her voice. She was essentially silenced. Her book went out of print for 50 years until it was rediscovered and celebrated anew by the feminist movement of the 1960s. Just to give you an early clue about her rejection of the role of Southern women, 
she mocked women's submissiveness to men by providing this satirical instruction on how to flirt with men. Just keep asking, she advised. What do you think? She did think for herself, and through more than a hundred short stories published in magazines, many about the local color of New Orleans and the Creole and Plantation Society there, she developed a loyal following, and even then she stretched the rules of what women should write or think, but it was only when she published The Awakening that she seemed to have gone too far for the antebellum sentiments and sensibilities, which were still strong and pervasive well after the Civil War. The story I'll read to you now is very short. It is called The Story of an Hour, and it is much shorter than an hour, as I said before, seven minutes. It concerns a southern woman's grief upon learning that her husband has been tragically killed in a train accident. It opens this way. Knowing that Mrs. Mallard was afflicted with the heart trouble, great care was taken to break to her as gently as possible the news of her husband's death. It was her sister Josephine who told her, in broken sentences, veiled hints that revealed and half-concealing. Her husband's friend Richards was there, too, near her. It was he who had been in the newspaper office when the intelligence of the railroad disaster was received, with Brentley Mallard's name leading the list of killed. He had only taken the time to assure himself of its truth by a second telegram and had then hastened to forestall any less careful, less tender friend in bearing the sad message to his wife. She did not hear the story as many women have heard the same, with a paralyzed inability to accept its significance. She wept at once, with sudden, wild abandonment in her sister's arms. When the storm of grief had spent itself, she went away to her room, alone, she would have no one follow her. There stood, facing the open window, a comfortable, roomy armchair. Into this she sank, pressed down by a physical exhaustion that haunted her body and seemed to reach into her soul. She could see in the open square before her house the tops of trees that were all a-quiver with the new spring life. The delicious breath of rain was in the air. In the street below, a peddler was crying his wares. The notes of a distant song which someone was singing reached her faintly, and countless sparrows were twittering in the eaves. There were patches of blue sky showing here and there through the clouds that had met and piled one above the other in the west facing her window. She sat with her head thrown back upon the cushion of the chair, quite motionless, except when a sob came up into her throat and shook her as a child who has cried itself to sleep continues to sob in its dreams. She was young with a fair, calm face, whose lines bespoke repression and even a certain strength, but now there was a dull stare in her eyes, whose gaze was fixed away off yonder, on one of those patches of blue sky. It was not a glance of reflection, but rather indicated a suspension of intelligent thought. There was something coming to her, and she was waiting for it, fearfully. 
What was it? It was too subtle and elusive to name. She felt it, creeping out of the sky, reaching toward her through the sounds, the scents, the color that filled the air. Now her bosom rose and fell tumultuously. She was beginning to recognize this thing that was approaching to possess her, and she was striving to beat it back with her will, as powerless as her two white, slender hands would have been. When she abandoned herself, a little whispered word escaped her slightly parted lips. She said it over and over under her breath. Free. 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 The vacant stare and the look of terror that had followed it went from her eyes. They stayed keen and bright, her pulses beat fast, and the coursing blood warmed and relaxed every inch of her body. She didn't stop to ask if it were or were not a monstrous joy that held her. A clear and exalted perception enabled her to dismiss the suggestion as trivial. She knew that she would weep again when she saw the kind, tender hands folded in death, the face that had never looked except with love upon her, fixed and gray and dead. But she saw beyond that bitter moment a long procession of years to come that would belong to her, absolutely. And she opened and spread her arms out to them in welcome. There would be no one to live for during those coming years. She would live for herself. There would be no powerful will bending hers in that blind persistence with which men and women believe they have a right to impose upon a fellow creature. A kind intention or a cruel intention made the act seem no less a crime as she looked upon it in that brief moment of illumination. And yet she had loved him, sometimes. Often she had not. What did it matter? What could love the unsolved mystery count for in the face of this possession of self-assertion, which she suddenly recognized as the strongest impulse of her being? Free. Body and soul free, she kept whispering. Josephine was kneeling before the closed door with her lips to the keyhole, imploring for admission. Louise, open the door. I beg, open the door. You will make yourself ill. What are you doing, Louise? For heaven's sake, open the door. Go away. I am not making myself ill. No, she was drinking in the very elixir of life through that open window. Her fancy was running riot along those days ahead of her, spring days and summer days, and all sorts of days that would be her own. She breathed a quick prayer that life might be long. And yet it was only yesterday she had thought with a shudder that life might be long. She arose at length and opened the door to her sister's importunities. There was a feverish triumph in her eyes, and she carried herself unwittingly like a goddess of victory. She clasped her sister's waist, and together they descended the stairs. Richards stood waiting for them at the bottom. Someone was opening the front door with a latch key. It was Brentley Mallard who entered, a little travel-stained, composedly carrying his gripsack and umbrella. 
He had been far from the scene of the accident and didn't even know there had been one. He stood amazed at Josephine's piercing cry, at Richard's quick motion to screen him from the view of his wife. When the doctors came, they said that Mrs. Mallard had died of heart disease, of the joy that kills. <laughs>